remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Well, he's got a lot of uh, instructions for what Titus is supposed to teach. What does he tell them to do in verse 1? Remind them to be subject to the rulers. Yeah. Obey the government. Be good citizens. You know, be subject to rulers, to authorities, be obedient, and be ready for every good deed. You know, we ought to be people who are, you know, submissive to authority. You know, whatever that authority may be. Uh, That's not easy, because sometimes we don't like the authority. But, I mean, as a Christian, do we have the right to have a rebellious attitude? Well, and we might think, well, but, you know, our government is so bad. Well, who was emperor when uh, Paul wrote this? You know, I doubt that our governing officials are a whole lot worse than he was from everything we read about him. Wow. You know, so it really doesn't matter about that. Obey the government. Obviously, if they told you to do something sinful, you wouldn't do that. But in general, you ought to be good citizens. Don't malign anybody. What does it mean to malign somebody? Sort of like slander. Slander, yeah. Almost falsely accused. Don't do that. Be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You know, be the kind of person that does thoughtful things for people. You know, be the kind of person that is kind. You know, you're willing to help people. You know, that's a hard thing sometimes. Sometimes we don't even notice people. Sometimes we're selfish. Sometimes it's like, well, I don't care about them. Well, we ought to. And, and think about why we ought to. What, what he's really asking us to do when he tells us to be peaceable and gentle and show every consideration for all men, really that's exactly what the Lord has done for us. He's not asking for us to do something that he hasn't done. Look at what our situation was. This is kind of a before and after picture. You know, the commercials on TV where what she looked like before and then after the you know, new reducing plan or whatever diet plan and what she looks like after. Right? It's like, whoa! Doesn't look like the same person. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but they say it was. Uh, but, uh, but look at the before picture in verse 3. How was this? That looked like a pleasant picture. You know, I mean, what are these people living like? Animals. Yeah, that's what it makes me think. You know, just almost just slaves to their desires. You know, totally, you know, stepping on or attacking anybody they need to to get what they want. 
that's that's pretty bad picture. Is that the way we were? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how how he's presenting it here. This was how that's the before. Why would you want to save people who were like this? Isn't that kind of amazing? You know, I think I might just decide I believe I want to save those people. But the Lord did, and he, he went out of his way to do that. When the kindness of God, our Savior, uh, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. So based upon his kindness and love, I need to answer this right quick, I think. Uh, so let me do that. I can figure out how to get to it. for my next study. Uh, when, when his kindness and love appeared, he saved us. You know, so based upon how much he cared about us, that's what he did. Now, how are we saved? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. What would that mean? If we were saved on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, how would we be being saved? Yeah, by our works. In other words, we would be earning it. Yeah. That's not how we're saved. How could we be saved that way? You know, wow, that would be tough. What what have we ever done to earn our salvation? Yeah. I mean, you just can't do that. Once you've sinned, that's out the window. So how did he save us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit? Well, it's based on God's mercy. We understand that. What's the washing of regeneration? He's cleansing of our sins. Yes. What is he talking about when he speaks of the washing of regeneration? Baptism. Why would you say that? It's a washing... I did some washing. Is it of regeneration? What does it mean, washing of regeneration? Means you a new person. Yes, to regenerate is to generate again. Is to uh, you know start over, <laughs> give them a new life, a new start. Is <laughs> baptism involved in a new life and a new start? Yes. Yeah. Remember Romans six. What does it say? We do. You die. You die, and you're buried, buried, and then you rise again in a new life. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Born again. Born again. Of what? Water and the Spirit. So that's what you've got here. The washing that regenerates us is baptism. So look at what this is saying. You're saved not by your works, but by baptism. Isn't that what it's saying? So what is that telling you baptism isn't? A work. A work. Think about, listen to that. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Talk in a minute about the renewing by the Holy Spirit. But, But that's saying he saved us not by our works, but by baptism. So baptism isn't a work. It really isn't. Just what work do you do when you're baptized? 
you don't even do anything. The other guy is the one who dips it. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You ever baptized anybody? You're the guy doing the work. You know, what do you what what kind of work does it take to get baptized? Really nothing. You know, it's not a work. It's receiving the grace of God. It's how it's how we we accept his grace and mercy to us. So this is a good passage to look at when somebody says, well, we're not saved by works, therefore we're not saved by baptism. This passage puts baptism on the side of what does save us and works on the side of what doesn't. There'll be people who would argue that the washing of regeneration is something other than baptism. But I think they have a real hard time doing that when you've got passages like Romans 6 and John 3 and even passages like Ephesians 5.26 He's cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. You know, there's too many passages that talk about baptism as being a washing that regenerates us. I think if we're fair about this, that's what he's talking about. Questions or comments about that? Okay, and he says, And renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So, not only are we saved by baptism, but we're renewed by the Holy Spirit that he poured out on us through Jesus. Now, should we be surprised that the Holy Spirit is poured out on us? What passages would already make us think that the Holy Spirit was poured out on us? Joel. Joel 2. You know, come about in the last days that uh, he will pour out upon all flesh, pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Repeat in Acts 2. Repeat in Acts 2. What else would make us think that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on us? When he told the apostles the sending of the Spirit? Mm, some of those passages like John 14 to 16 were special ones just for the apostles. That you guide them into all truth, for example. Or remind them of everything Jesus said. What about what John the Baptist said? Jesus would baptize with the Spirit and fire. Yes. Now, I think that's two different things. And you want the Spirit, but you don't want the fire. Because the fire in those contexts is punishment, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Look at a couple more Old Testament passages. Well, since since Titus is talking about this subject, look at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 3. This is a, you know, messianic prophecy. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. That one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. So here he pours out his spirit on the offspring that say, I am the Lord's. There's several more passages we could look at, but let me show you one more in the Old Testament. Look at Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39 29, that's the last verse of Ezekiel 39, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So, 
the Old Testament was living in the expectation that God would, God would pour his spirit out on his people. John came along and said he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, I think one or the other. You know, you and in Acts, he'll pour out his spirit on all flesh. Um, look at one more passage while we're at it. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now this is a translation question. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now here's the question. In my margin it says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Should it be by one spirit or in one spirit? I say it's better in one spirit. I think that is more correct. And we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Is there any passage in the Bible that indicates the Holy Spirit is the one who does the baptizing of us? That's one of, if it said baptized by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit would be the baptizer. You know, Jesus was baptized by... John the Baptist. In... Jordan. Yes. Every passage in the Bible is consistent about that, at least in the New Testament. The by refers to who does it. The in is what it's done in. And this word is normally with baptism in, not by. So I think he's saying we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean then that all Christians can speak in tongues and prophesy and work miracles and cast out demons and all that kind of stuff? No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, not even in the first century could all Christians do that, and that's when the spiritual gifts existed. The spiritual gifts ceased when the full revelation came. We have the Holy Spirit poured out on us. It doesn't mean we speak in tongues or anything like that. But it does mean that we are, we are blessed by His mercy with the washing that regenerates us and the renewing by the Holy Spirit that He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When you think of the word poured, what's the difference between poured and, um, you know, something else? What, what do you think about when you think of poured? A heavy yeah, there's a lot of it if you pour it. What would be something that would be less strong than pour? Sprinkle. Sprinkle. Drizzle. Drizzle. A Splash. down, Splash. a downpour of rain is a lot different than just, you know. Yeah, kind of rained. Yeah, yeah. So poured out, and then he says poured out upon us richly. So that's kind of adding to the pour. This is a downpour. We are we fully receive the Holy Spirit, and I think that's something for us to give more attention to. If we understand that the Holy Spirit poured out on us. What should that change in our life? Well, what about like, what are the fruit, uh, what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Remember that passage? So if the Holy Spirit's poured out on us richly, shouldn't we be bearing that kind of fruit? And uh, Romans 8 has a good passage that talks about, uh, if I can come up with it here uh, momentarily, 
In Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit is, is the agent through which we put to death the deeds of the body, that is the sinful things. So, you know, we need to live like the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon us richly. And uh, then he says in 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, we're justified by his grace, and now we're heirs of eternal life. So he says, this is a trustworthy statement, you know, this is what you need to preach and believe, these things are good and profitable. This is, this is what you really need to listen to, what you need to really follow and believe. This is, this is the message that he's giving to Titus to preach. The message of the before and after. You were, verse 3, horrible. But by his kindness and love, he saved us, not by our works, but according to his mercy, by baptism and the Holy Spirit's renewal that he poured out on us richly so we'd be justified by his grace and made heirs of eternal life. And you need to teach it this way. So that's quite a mouthful. That's quite an awesome thing. Uh, thoughts and comments on any of this through verse 8. Okay, uh, 9 to 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a facious, factious. factious man after a first and second warning. Know that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Okay, well, Timothy's got some things to stay away from, which are... Discussions. Yeah, you ever been in any of those? <laughs> what makes it stupid? <laughs> Sometimes. Can it ever be the subject matter? Mm-hmm. There's nothing to be gained by winning the argument either way. Yes, <laughs> thing, things that don't really matter at all. You know, he says, foolish controversies, genealogies, strifes and disputes about the law. Things that don't matter. Things that don't make any difference. You know, some things aren't worth the effort. Drop them. You ever seen that? You ever gotten in an argument with somebody just about anything, and you suddenly realized, this is so pointless. Why am I even bothering to argue about this? You know, if the person wants to be dumb and believe it that way, so be it. You know, but it's not worth discussing. You know, don't you feel that way sometimes? Mm-hmm. Have you seen somebody who is willing to argue about absolutely anything? Mm-hmm. Everything? No matter what it is, they'll argue? That's the profession of lawyers. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. That is kind of a lawyer thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So... Um, and then, you know, this factious man, is, he said, needs to be rejected after a first and second warning. What makes a man a factious man? What is factious? Causing trouble. Troublemaker, yeah. Divisive. Maybe based upon these foolish controversies and the worthless things that, you know, people argue about, perhaps, or perhaps it's something else. 
But somebody who's just intent on getting people fighting and, and you know, getting people split up into groups, avoid after two warnings. So what's that saying about how you deal with him as opposed to other people? You give up on him pretty quickly. Why? I mean, most of the time you think of being long-suffering and lots of warnings. and I mean, even God sent ten plagues before he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. <laughs> even to a Pharaoh. So why only two warnings for this guy? Maybe he's more dangerous. I think that's it. He is going to hurt other people with his false teaching and with his divisiveness. He's going to get people lined up in his group, you know, and there's nothing you're going to get by talking to him more either, because this kind of a guy, what? the more you argue with him, the more... The happier he gets. The happier he gets, and the more stubborn he gets. And the more he's not about to change his mind, no matter what the evidence is. Knowing such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. I mean, he pretty much just shoots himself in the foot. You know, he, he condemns himself by this. You know, just to admonition, he's, he's out. Don't, don't put up with him. He's just going to do damage. So there are times to be very quick about rejecting somebody who's damaging. You know, this is not just a guy who has a different view of something, but people who are leading people astray and causing fights and divisions. Don't put up with them for long. Comments and questions about that? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this has anything to do with it, but I was wondering, because you talked about um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, how they were wanting to... I mean, in the people, in the books, they kept rejecting, but God said, keep um, preaching to them until they get, like, they keep getting worse and worse every time he preaches to them. So, he's supposed to preach, Isaiah and Jeremiah are supposed to preach to them until God destroys them. Mm-hmm. And this guy only has two warnings, and then you just give up on him? Yep. Kick him out. Is this a New Testament, Old Testament thing? Well, uh, yeah, maybe in some ways. This is like being a part of the group. This is not just preaching to people. But this is like he's one of the church. So exclude him from the church quickly. Other thoughts? Uh, okay. That makes it Yeah. Did they argue about genealogies a lot? And what would you argue about that? I have no idea. <laughs> it seems to come up a lot. I was wondering like, it does. why that was such a big deal. It's got to be a good example of something that's useless. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he's talking to them because that was that was very important to the Jews. In fact, they still, you know, once... After the captivity, they had trouble finding their genealogies, and so I could see them having big arguments about who's rightfully a priest or a, you know a singer or a, you know what uh-huh. tribe and and stuff like that. But Paul's saying, or yeah, at this point it doesn't matter to anyone about those things. I wonder if that's what it's related to. Maybe. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like the height of being pointless. <laughs> but maybe so. Maybe that's the background for that. 
there's just some things that are not worth discussing. There's there's just not any profit in them. I mean, we've got to be careful. I mean, true teaching has practical benefit. And some things are just like, so what if you resolve this, what would you know? How would it help you? What would it change about your spiritual life? You know, they're just not like, it's not going to matter, you know, at all. So, and, and you see that every once in a while, and people just insisting. And, wow, we get all bent out of shape about things that are really kind of irrelevant. Other thoughts? All right, 12 to 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet <coughs> to meet pressing needs so they will be so they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith, grace be with you all. Okay. Um when you look at what Paul's saying even like in verse 12, what does that make Paul kind of look like? What do you mean? Like, I mean, what's his role here? What's he doing? He is. What kind of a person would do that? Yes. Like... You know, you can see a business manager maybe telling his employees, you go here, you do this, you do that. Maybe an army commander, you know, dispatching troops over to this conflict or that area, you know, protect something else. That, that's kind of the idea I get, that Paul was kind of, you know, the, the commander in the situation. And uh, telling, you know, these guys where to go and what to do. Now, it seems clear to me... By everything Paul's saying, both at the beginning and the end of this book, he was not in prison while he was writing Titus. You know, he'd left Timothy in Crete, and, uh, you know, he's decided to spend the winter in Nicopolis. You know, he's not in prison. So, the question mark, when we're trying to look at a book like Titus, was it before or after the Roman imprisonment? If it was before, when did he do all this? Not out of the question, but it doesn't seem very likely. I think it's an indication he was released from prison, he went and did some of these things, and then he was re-imprisoned for Second Timothy. But, but that's really the reason we assume there was kind of a release, and he did some stuff and then re-imprisoned, because we really don't know where to put this stuff in his life if it was before, you know, the book of Acts ended. Uh, so he says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, then you make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I'm going to spend the winter there. So, you know, Paul's like sending somebody almost to replace Titus, it looks to me like, don't you think? Somebody who can try to deal with these brethren in Crete and all the difficulties that they've got there. So I'm going to send one of them to you, and you try to get to Nicopolis if you possibly can, because I've decided that's where I'm going to spend the winter. Paul wants to see him, maybe debrief him, maybe encourage him, or whatever. So he's hoping they get to spend the winter together in Nicopolis. And then he says, help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. 
I'm guessing, I, we can't prove this, but I'm guessing these two guys were carrying the letter. And he's saying, well, they're, wherever else they're going next, you know, give them a little money and food and, you know, a map or, you know, whatever they might need to get on to the next place. It looks to me like. Um, it's not uncommon for Paul to identify people like Zenos uh, as the lawyer. Can you remember some other people Paul identified by the profession? Luke the physician? Yes, Colossians 4.14. And? The uh, silversmith. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not so much Paul, but yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of Romans 16.23. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. So sometimes he will tell us what the profession was when he sends the greeting. So here Zenos is the lawyer. Um, and then, you know, take, take care of them, whatever they need. And then he says in 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. You know, Christianity is going to express itself in doing good deeds and helping people out. And uh, you, it's not enough just to believe you got to have faith and action by doing good deeds uh, and, and help people who are in need. Which is kind of a theme of the letter. Just look for a second at this. Look at the end of 116, not uh, worthless for any good deed. Look at 2.7, example in good deeds. 2.14, zealous for good deeds. 3.1, ready for every good deed. And now 3.8... Uh, teach, God, teach them to be careful and engage in good deeds. So one of the sub-themes of Titus is you got to do good deeds. And then he says, all those who are with me greet you, greet those who, who love us in the faith, grace be with you all. So, um, you know, you've got grace at the beginning and end of every letter of Paul. All right, comments or questions on Titus? So do we have so much of Paul's life accounted for in Acts that like, we couldn't possibly... You could possibly... That we didn't know where he was. <laughs> you could possibly, but... It's not easy to have him send it, uh, leaving Titus in Crete and spending the winter in Nicopolis. Okay. That, you know... He, he wouldn't have done that in the first missionary journey. He didn't go that far. You know, and he was with Barnabas. Mm-hmm. You know, second journey, okay, but wonder when and where. I mean, he shot a beeline for Troas, then went over to Macedonia and Achaia, and then he was rushing back to Jerusalem for the feast. Uh, and then the third journey, I mean, it looks like he went to Ephesus and spent three years, and then you know, he went through Troas to Macedonia and then Decaia and then... Uh, it's just, there's a hard... It's hard to... Not that we got every detail of what he did, mm-hmm. but it's like we have enough of them that it's hard to know where we can fit this in. Maybe it does. You know, maybe we're just really you know, spaced somewhere. But I think it's a little easier to say this is after he's released. Other comments or thoughts? All right, well, this is uh, Titus. We'll let that go at that. And 